May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, everybody. I'm just so grateful to be with you today. My name is Jonathan Warren Pagan, again, for those of you who do not remember. And uh, today we're celebrating the first Sunday of Epiphany, which is also the feast of the baptism of our Lord. So kind of like two-for-one feast on today's Sunday. Um, the word epiphany in Greek, it means showing forth. It's a word that means showing forth. And so this season is really dedicated to the ways that Jesus' identity gets increasingly revealed and manifested to the world. The most famous of these epiphanies, of course, is the revelation of his identity to the Magi at Jesus' birth. I mean, this is really the first revelation of Jesus' messianic and divine identity to the nations. Because the Magi uh, and those, you know, who come to revere him at the manger are most likely Persian Zoroastrian sages, not Jewish believers. So it really is kind of a revelation to the nations. But in today's gospel reading, we get yet another epiphany at Jesus' baptism in the Jordan when the dove descends upon him and the voice from heaven cries out, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So historically, the epiphany of Jesus' identity in his baptism is the day on which the church, appropriately enough, also celebrates baptism. And today we have this incredible privilege as a congregation of baptizing Benjamin Paul Magby. This is our first baptism, of course, at Emmanuel, as I said earlier. And I just really hope and pray and anticipate that this baptism will be the first fruit of many baptisms that will flow from the good news of the gospel taking root in all of our hearts here at Emmanuel. You're going to take vows as a congregation just to project a little bit. Y'all get ready, get your hearts ready to take these vows because you're going to take vows as a congregation to do everything in your power to see to it that Benjamin comes to know and to follow the risen Lord. Our canon theologian in Churches for the Sake of Others Diocese, that's our diocese that Emmanuel belongs to, Canon theologian is a fancy word meaning like public theologian. This is somebody who advises the bishop but also writes things. And our, one of our canon theologians, we have several, is Scott McKnight, and he has written a book that has a great title, It Takes a Church to Baptize. And that is true. Baptism is not some individual thing, some solitary thing that's between, you know, me and Jesus. It's the whole church coming together to baptize everyone who is baptized. We're at the beginning of our ministry and our mission as a church in Austin. Our future is like crackling with the possibilities of what the Spirit might do through us as we pray and listen and meditate on Scripture and tradition together and read the signs of the times and respond like Mary did at the Annunciation, saying yes to Jesus, saying let it be unto us as you have said in your word. And our commitment today to baptize and disciple Benjamin as a congregation is a microcosm of who we want to be as a church and how we want to be on mission as a congregation. We want to be people who embrace Christ's great commission in Matthew 28, going into all the world to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them everything that Christ taught his disciples and trusting them with the words of life that God has given us in the scriptures. The Anglican articles of religion describe the scriptures as God's words written. They are words of life given to refashion us and reform us into the image and likeness of Jesus. And that's what we're doing. When we baptize someone, we're saying, we are now entrusting you with these words of life. We want to be people who honor and commit ourselves to the great commandment. Not just the great commission, but the great commandment which Jesus 
gives to us in Matthew 22, that we should love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our souls, and with all our minds, and we should love our neighbors as ourselves. We want to be people who cherish and dedicate ourselves to Christ's new commandments, which he gives to the disciples in John 13, that we love one another as he has loved us, so that the world may know that we are his disciples. We want to be a people who pursue the holy end, that all might know and bend the knee to Jesus by the holy means of love, compassion, persuasion, gentleness, and justice. If we had to distill the mission of our church into a single sentence, that would be it. To be a people changed and nurtured by Jesus, who seek to incarnate the kingdom of God in our city through the ways and means given to us by our Savior himself. The King Jesus. St. Paul has this beautiful passage in Philippians 4-5 that I think expresses this mission potently. He says, let your epia case be apparent to all. The Lord is near. I left that word untranslated because it's a really hard word to translate. Epiakeia means gentleness, moderation, reasonableness. The Lord is near to us and to those who are watching us when we seek to express his mission in postures consistent with who he is. All of these things, all of these things that I've just said out loud, right, are adherence to the great commission and the great commandment and the new commandment to do the work of the kingdom by the means that Jesus appointed for us to do it in. These are all the core commitments that we are expressing in this potent, condensed symbol of baptism. We are expressing these commitments materially and sacramentally with water and oil and candlelight. We're expressing them verbally as a congregation when we stand together in solidarity with these sponsoring parents, and these sponsoring parents take these super intense vows on behalf of, of Benjamin to raise him in the faith. We are pledging on behalf of Benjamin to renounce the world and the flesh and the devil and to fight bravely against these enemies of the cross through prayer and spiritual warfare and raising Benjamin to love all that is good and true and beautiful and noble and heavenly. So if you want to know why Jesus was baptized, one answer to that question would be that he was baptized so that we could become a people who were capable of carrying out that mission. But there is, I believe, an even more fundamental reason why Jesus was baptized. And it comes from the conviction that in Jesus' baptism, there is an epiphany. There's a revelation, a manifestation of Jesus' identity in the Son of God and what that Reality, what that identity means for us as a church. There is this great temptation. It's expressed over and over again in different ways throughout the tradition to prioritize doing over being. In fact, to see our being as in some way defined by our doing. We are, in, in essence, who we make of ourselves. It is the temptation to see the story of Jesus as an archetypal hero story. There's this son of promise and prophecy, and he sallies forth to discover his identity. He slays giants and dragons, and in the process, metaphorically dies and is resurrected and forges an identity and reshapes the world around himself through the force of his personality and charisma and power. There's always this temptation to read the story of Jesus in just that way. Modern forms, you get Carl Jung, you get Jordan Peterson, they're all reading it that way. But in the ancient church, there are other examples, more kind of like formidable archetypal examples of reading the story wrong in Arius and in Pelagius 
every version of the reading of the Jesus story in that way, church calls heresy. Alistair McGrath, who's a, a contemporary theologian, calls these readings defective, deficient, and compromised understandings of the faith. They produce diminished disciples because inevitably the application of that reading of the story is, you suck, do better, be more like Jesus. And this defective vision of who Jesus is and therefore wants us to be is particularly salient and seductive in Austin, Texas. Am I right? In late modernity in Austin, Texas, we live in a culture that is permeated entirely by a kind of secularized works righteousness. We aren't trying to prove necessarily that we're worthy to God so that he'll accept us. But what we are desperate to do is to prove to everybody else around us that we are worthy of their approbation and their support and their acceptance and the status that they're willing to confer upon us. And we're trying to do that with all the institutions that confer respectability and status in our society. We're trying to prove that we are worthy in all these ways. Austin runs on productivity, on innovation, on life hacking, generativity, living a great story. Those ideals, those values have also infiltrated the church. Am I right? We can see the bad fruit of that when the church embraces those values. It makes the church egotistical. It makes the church self-regarding. It makes the church obsessed with metrics. It makes the church fragile and territorial. <coughs> in other words, the church becomes the opposite of what it's meant to be in the kingdom. It's bad fruit in kingdom terms. We intuitively believe as late modern people that our legacy depends on what we accomplish, upon making a name for ourselves, upon being the best and the most excellent at what we do. We all intuitively want to be change makers and agents of transformation. Our most salient metaphor for cultural change, even in the church. I'll let y'all have a guess. What do you think is the most kind of, how do we talk about changing the culture? What is the word, the one word that everybody uses? It's on everybody's lips when they talk about changing the culture. Making a what? Making a difference? No, making an, I'll do that, do it that way. Making an help you out? Impact. I want to make an impact, right? Even in the church, we talk in these terms about making an impact on culture, and it's all very telling. Andy Crouch, in his book, The Life We're Looking For, notes that impact denotes concentrated force over a short amount of time. And the laws of physics dictate that most impacts are very unpleasant. We might well wonder why we should choose a verb associated with an event that will raise your insurance rates and require a trip to the doctor as the suitable metaphor for the transformation of culture. The answer, Andy tells us, is that we are fascinated by the power of instantaneous concentrated force. When something or someone breaks into the world with such irresistible and overwhelming power that everything is broken and rearranged. The idea of impacting culture is that the, 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 the salience of that for us, the attractiveness of that to us, is that it happens immediately, instantaneously, no waiting. It's just done. And so that we have this kind of cultural mythology that tells us that what really matters is the undeniable, colossal power of a juggernaut that can clear the decks, that can suddenly break and remake all things in the image of the Colossus. I mean, think about Silicon Valley. What is Silicon Valley's motto? Anybody? Move fast, finish it. Move fast and 
break things. <coughs> Culturally, we are obsessed with this. But look what is happening in this narrative. Even in Mark's gospel, which is very terse, or maybe even especially in Mark's gospel because it's so terse. Jesus has not begun his public ministry yet. He has not done anything at all that the public would acknowledge as being worthy. And yet at this moment, before having proved himself at all, he is suffused and secure in the love of God. We have this stunning revelation of the character of God in this first moment of Christ's ministry. At the deepest level of his being, the one God, who is also three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a perfect relationship of love. That is what is being revealed to us. That is what's being manifested and shown forth in this epiphany. The Holy Trinity lacks nothing, strives for nothing, is fully content and delighted in the abundant divine life. As Christians have meditated on this passage throughout history, we have come to see that what it means to be God is not simply to be loving, but to be love, to be self-sacrificial, servant-hearted love. In the words of St. Hilary of Poitiers in the 4th century, although our God is one, not two or three gods, he is not a solitary God. The Holy Trinity is not a lonely God. God does not create because God is empty or lacks anything, but out of the fullness and joy that composes his very being. The God who created everything that is and is rescuing everything is the God who delights and rejoices in eternal, harmonious, effervescent Communion. Think about that for a second. That is what is at the heart of creation. Not power. Or if it is power, it's that kind of power. This is my son in whom I am well pleased, the father says, proclaiming and manifesting what has been true from before the foundations of the world. The reason Jesus is baptized, the reason that there is this epiphany, is so that we might be united with and embraced by this divine love. What does Jesus say about his ministry in John chapter 10? The thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Anyone who has been embraced by this divine love into which we are baptized is in possession of a source of living water and abundant life. If you are baptized in this room today, you have been adopted into God's family. You have the stunning dig dignity and status of being co-heirs with Christ and children of God. You haven't done a single thing that is worthy of God's approbation and affection. But the one who created all things and in whom all things hold together at every moment loved you with an everlasting love and declares you worthy. Amen? St. Augustine put it this way with his characteristic brilliance. In loving us, you have made us lovable. You understand the difference between those two things? We have not brought anything to God and said, count me worthy on the basis of what I have done here. Rather, Jesus says, I love you, and that makes you love me. There is no other source of contentment. There is no other source of power. There is no other source of motivation that can be more powerful than this to know that the God of the universe who made you out of dust counts you worthy as belonging to his family. You are, as Thomas Aquinas put it, dust bound for heaven. That's why St. Leo the Great in the 5th century said, Christians, remember your dignity. 
Remember your dignity, church. You received that dignity in baptism. Remember your dignity. That's the secret to letting go of grasping, of egoistic self-regard, of posturing and lying and scheming and slander. That's the solution to it. Remember your dignity. You belong to God's family. Remember the dignity that Jesus gives you in your baptism. That is the secret to contentment and quiet, servant-hearted love. And to other people looking at your life and the life of this church, to our gentleness, our reasonableness, our ease in the world, and saying, what is it about that person? What is it about that community that is so attractive and so powerful? Remember the dignity that you have because it's the secret of Jesus' way of culture change. Jesus' way is not the way of impact. It's the way of water. It's the way of patience. It's the way of humble love that in the end carves canyons and splits rocks and levels cities. It's the way embraced by Father Zosima in Fyodor Dostoevsky's novel, The Brothers Karamazov. He has this incredible chapter called Conversations and Exhortations of Father, Father Zosima. And in that chapter, the monk says, at some thoughts, one stands perplexed, especially at the sight of men's sin, and wonders whether one should use force or humble love. Always decide to use humble love. If you resolve on that once for all, you may subdue the whole world. Loving humility is marvelously strong, the strongest of all things, and there is nothing else like it. Water is, for us, a metaphor of the truth that Jesus shows us and demonstrates to us in baptism through the power of water. The problems of this world are real and urgent and vital. But if you trust that the kingdom is coming and that there is a king who is making it materialize, and it's not you or me, but it's Jesus, and that he's already made all of us co-heirs with him to that kingdom in our baptism, we are all brothers and sisters shouting amen to that reality throughout history and across geography in an unbroken chain. If you believe all of that, then you may address those problems with the patience and with the humility of Jesus. Because we are baptized. We can follow his way and his pace of doing things. We can let go of the illusion that moving fast and violently and impactfully will do anything other than break things. Tish joked with me this week that Emmanuel should have a bumper sticker that says, move slow and repair things. Absolutely right, right? That is the way of water. I love how baptism expresses this visually and materially. The way of water symbolizes the slow but inexorable victory of God over all things that oppose him. This past weekend, Tish and I were in Chattanooga getting some much-needed time away for reflection and also relational maintenance and repair. And on the, on the rare occasions that we get to do that, um, we like to go to this place, Chattanooga. I don't know why. Chattanooga just became a very special spot to us. We lived in Nashville, Nashville for a bunch of years, and Chattanooga became very special. Sorry, I'm going to cough. <coughs> Sorry about that. Um, and when we go there, the thing that we love to do above all is to go walking with coffee and hike. I mean, it's very simple, but we just love to do that. And our favorite spot to hike in Chattanooga is Lookout Mountain. Anybody been to Lookout Mountain? Okay, we got a couple. All right. Lookout Mountain is basically this huge hunk of limestone. Some of the best and most challenging bouldering in the southeast is on Lookout Mountain because it has these huge sheer cliffs. I mean, it's basically you can't see, like, any handholds in them, and they just rise up imposingly on the side of the mountain. As we're hiking one of the trails this last time, I noticed that on the, several of these sheer faces, there are these like minuscule, like two millimeters across, fissures in the rock. 
what's going on there? So I, I got closer, and I noticed that there are these little rivulets of water that are flowing down, right in a line, down the rock. And over millennia, this water has carved a channel that goes almost all the way down in this rock. Eventually, it's going to split the rock in half. It's just a brilliant metaphor for the way that God changes cultures and instantiates his justice and his reign. It's silent, it's secret, it's invisible. It is a way of invitation and repair. It's not the way of impact, it's the way of water. And we're coming now to those waters. They are full of marvelous power. They are full of the power with which the Holy Spirit brooded over the watery deeps in the beginning of creation. When the Holy Spirit hovered over those waters, God was thinking of you, your story, your experiences, your identity. These waters are full of marvelous power to confer on you a status that you did not and could not ever earn, but which is freely given to you by God's grace. Just because he loves you, and in loving you, he has made you lovable. They are full of a marvelous power to remake you slowly, inexorably, as sure as the sun, into someone who is capable of carrying out the mission of building the kingdom here in Austin, Texas, in the way and with the patience of Jesus. So let us come with minds and with imaginations renewed, with great joy and delight that we are privileged to welcome another little brother into the great family of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.